This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. There is no mistaking that. That is the Go-Go's. There is no mistaking that. You didn't even need to hear 10 seconds of that to know that was the Go-Go's. You could have heard one beat, and you would know that's, we got the beat. Well, we have an opportunity right now to speak with Kathy Valentine, bassist with the Go-Go's and a member of so many other bands, and now the author of a brand-new memoir, all I Ever Wanted, a rock and roll memoir. Kathy, it is great to have you here. How are things? They're good. It's so funny. Hi, everybody. As soon as I heard we got the beat, I turned into like instant go-go, and I'm like dancing right here in my <laughs> my little uh, backyard area. <laughs> it's like Would you guys work on little dance moves? Because that became a thing for bands later where you had to have coordinated dance stuff. Did you guys have that, or did you just go? No, no, we we never had any set moves. We were probably the most unlike planned, unproduction oriented act ever. And in fact, I'm almost proud of it. I think I am proud of it. We go out on the stage, and it's just the strength of us having a great time and great songs. There's no big fireworks or lighting displays or backdrops or costume changes. It's just you know five. Five gals, like, rocking out, and it's pretty cool. I'm proud of it. As it should be. And you mentioned it, five gals, all-female band, a band that like to have a good time, but at the same time, all-female, when there wasn't really an all-female band in music, at least one that we would sort of recognize. You can go back in history and find them, but no, one that hit it big. How hard? Was it for you guys at that time to cut through maybe some of the doubters and I'm sure some of the sexism that you faced? Well, we we got a kick out of succeeding when we were told that we couldn't succeed. Now, that's for sure. You know, and not only did we succeed, but we succeeded as as well as you can. I mean, we, we got to number one when nobody wanted to even give us a record deal. And the reason wasn't because, oh, you're not popular. Oh, you don't have good songs. The reason we were turned down for record deals over and over again was that executives, the male executives would say, oh, no, sorry, there's never been an all-female all successful band. So it was, it was awesome to be able to go, oh, yeah, well, there is now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, not, not have that be what other females get to hear when they try to get record deals. So, yeah, it was awesome. But we were also working really hard and having a great time. We were young. We were doing something we loved. With, you know, we were best friends. So it wasn't like we were just sitting around stewing all the time, like, oh, we'll show them. We were just out taking care of business. But how do you keep going? I mean, take us back to the end of a meeting like that, where you walk into a record exec's office, and you sit down, the five of you are there, and you're thinking, this this one, you know, we have we have something, we know it, we're going to show it, they're going to realize it, and then it, it doesn't happen. How do you get back up and go to the next one? Well, I mean, literally it wasn't like that, but, but uh, figuratively, that's kind of, you know, not only for us, but for, you know, 
a lot of people that have to prove themselves. And if you just believe in it and believe in, in what you're doing, and also you're getting something. I mean, the band would sell out my first show with the band or series of shows. And I write about this in the book so, so well that you feel like you're right there next to me. But my first series of shows was eight sold out shows. There's very few local bands that could have done that, you know, at that, that point. So you're not like sitting there thinking, oh, they say I can't do it when you're selling out night after night and fans are going crazy. And, and you know, that's kind of where it's at in the moment. But, Kath- but yeah, I, I get what you're saying. And, and you, you just kind of you just don't listen to that kind of no. Love it. Kathy Valentine joining us from the Go-Go's. Kathy's new memoir is out, All I Ever Wanted, a rock and roll memoir. And there is talk, and we'll find out in just a little bit if, if those 2021 dates are, are still out there. I really hope that they are. But, Kathy, let's go back. Let's go back to the beginning of this for you because you're barely out of your teens. You're, what, 2021, 20, somewhere around there, and you go from hanging out in L.A. to – being in this band what was that transition like does it seem now like it happened overnight or was it a little more gradual than that well writing the book it's always interesting when you like look back like when you remember your life it's all these fragments of memories and writing it out was was an amazing experience i really got to you know put myself back in that spot and remember the amazing feeling of playing with the band for the first time finding it really was all I ever wanted. I called the book that because not only is it a key line from my most well-known song, Vacation, but it encompasses what so much of the theme of the book is, which I just wanted to make it in the business. I wanted to feel like I belonged. A band represented like a family. I felt like I was playing with my sisters, the family I'd never had. So it was... um, it was really, really exciting, and I moved to L.A. to make it in the music business. The, the Go-Go's came from the, the punk rock streets of L.A., but I came from Texas. I'd been playing for a few years. I'd been in England playing, and I moved to L.A. to make it. And when I met these women and I heard these songs, I was like, this is it. This is, what, this is all I ever wanted. This is the band that can do it, can go where I want to go. So it was... Um, it was like, I felt like a success from the minute I found them. To be honest, a lot of people are like, oh, you must have felt so successful when you went number one. For somebody that's 20, I was 21 when I met them, and that's what I had wanted for the last five years of my life, which is, when you're 21, five years is a fourth of your life. So, you know, I had found that. And then it just got better. It was the gift <laughs> and still is the gift that keeps giving. That's it. I mean, we've seen a Broadway show come out of this, and you guys get back together at times, and the plan is still right to do some shows in 2021 if the world lets you? Absolutely. It's it's amazing, and it's such a, a strong message that I like to put out that, you know, people are often kind of, the picture gets painted that when you get in your 50s and 60s, you're supposed to just be this kind of shuffling off person that can't figure out how to use their iPhone or whatever, and you know, we like being out there on stage, still just being fresh, being exciting, having fun, and taking people out of into a good place, into a joyful place. That's a, a really strong part of our message. Even though we're not making new records all the time, and we're still, we have such a strong legacy and such a strong message that I feel 
so proud and honored to still be a part of. Well, you've got songs that resonate now as strongly as they did when they were first released. We're talking with Kathy Valentine. She has written All I Ever Wanted, rock and roll memoir. Kathy, you talk about the family aspect of the Go-Go's and, and your upbringing a lot in the book, the idea that your parents had separated and you, you know, there, there was something you needed, that, that security, and you found that security. You guys were together. If we think back right now, you'd think, oh, yeah, the, the Go-Go's were together all, all 80s long. Yeah, the ultimate 80s band. They, 10 years, 12 years. This was less than five years. How did you yeah. deal with the fact that the band didn't stay together? What was that like for you? Well, it was devastating, and one of the reasons I talk about, you know, a large part of my book it's a it's a literary coming of age memoir about loss and triumph and the band is a is certainly a part of it but it's not the history of the go-go's or anything and my readers really they really have felt strong identification and resonance with the parts of the story before and after because that i mean for so many of us music just kind of saves us you know it it, it helps us feel things it helps us kind of takes us out of our feelings and we need that it music is just so much worse and for me like any other teenager rock and roll was like that was where I found my identity and when I started playing music that became even more so this was where I was going to find my place in the world and how I wanted to make it so by the time I was making it in the go-go's it was everything to me. It was my family, my security, how I was going to take care of myself. It was a dream come true. It was doing what, you know, we all want to do something we love and get paid for. That's kind of the number one goal. I mean, well, the number one goal is to survive and pay the bills. But number two, if you can do something you love, it's a jackpot of life. And so it was amazing. And then once I had it, I was like, oh, all I could think was like being afraid to lose it. I didn't want to lose it. So when it did kind of implode, explode, whatever, it was devastating. I was so lost. I was so lost. And that's such a poignant part of the story is how you find yourself after getting completely wrapped up in your identity and, and so many other aspects of life becomes all about one thing. Did it stop that quickly? Was it there one day, not there the next? That's what it felt like. But prior to that, I just was, I was running myself ragged trying to make everybody happy and keep it together. Like in my eyes, I just couldn't see how could any band let this go, you know? And I, I just felt like as long as I make it fun, make this person laugh, I mean, it's almost like a, it's a relationship or a marriage. It's a, and imagine being in a relationship or a marriage where all you're fixated on is trying to make the other person happy so you don't lose it. It's just, it's not healthy. And we, we're immature, you know. You get you hear all the stories about the Go-Go's breaking up because of ego and money and drugs and all that. And sure, that played a part. But what really played the biggest part was that we didn't, have good communication skills we didn't have developed sense of empathy and compassion and you know it can just take a while to grow up I think everybody knows that I mean imagine a bunch of college freshmen that are just going wild but they're in a rock and roll band <laughs> that paints a picture 
That paints a really good picture. <laughs> Kathy Valentine with us. Kathy has written All I Ever Wanted, a rock and roll memoir. Kathy, when you look at kind of those moments and, and overcoming them and, and dealing with them, how therapeutic was putting together this book and kind of going back over that? It was amazing. I, I, was, I thought at the time that it was the most effective, uh, cheapest, deepest, therapy I'd ever had and not only feeling the painful stuff because some of the things in my adolescence are are very dark and very painful and I knew that this book had to be honest and and vulnerable and truthful and it was hard but on the other flip side was you know getting to relive making our first album Beauty and the Beat which was one of the most successful debuted albums ever I think it's in the top 25 it was it was a unbelievable experience. You know, I was 22 years old in New York City for two months, making a record with my best friends and getting to relive that and going on tour and being in places for the first time that I'd never even dreamed of being. It was really exciting, but also there was a lot of pain, too, because the book goes into the it's, it's not a compelling story if it's just all. Woohoo! Good times, you know. It, 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 <laughs> it, well, that's it, just I it. I mean, you as a band, you you've already described it. You know that there was there was hard work and there was a hard partying after, and that was kind of the image of the band. How much of that was dead on real, and how much of that was to kind of you know make sure that that the band stood out? Well, it was kind of just part and parcel of you know when you're in a band. You don't have the same constraints as like, you know, you don't always, it, it, it just kind of goes with it. And also there's, it's hard to describe what it's like to be on stage and play this show and you come up and you're just on this high and you kind of want to keep going. And it was the 80s, which anybody that was of a certain age in the 80s knows that that was a, an era of a lot of excess and, and kind of, it was a, a, an era where people were just kind of, it came out of the seven. It was kind of just this natural progression of the free love and, you know, expand your mind of the sixties to the seventies, got a little more debauched. And then the eighties was just crazy. And we're all young kind of at the top of the game. So it was not like we were trying to fit an image. It was just part of it. And, you know, my stuff with that, that went way back when I was younger. I, I turned to, numbing my feelings from a very young age because I felt so sad, so abandoned, so untaken care of and so unlooked after that, you know, I started drinking when I was very young and that became a, I wasn't like a, an unfunctional person, but it was a a tool and a crutch to deal with the feelings that I had never faced. Well, you deal with that in the book, All I Ever Wanted, a rock and roll memoir. Kathy, one last thing. You got to play Radio City Music Hall. You got to play Boston Garden. You got to play Saturday Night Live. Any performance you think back when you want to just, you know, dip back into the memory and and relive something, does anything like that come to mind, any of those three or another one? Yes, and I I write about that in my book, too, and I was – my biggest accomplishment was getting these feelings on the page so someone would know what it felt like. And what the one that stands out and that I wrote about was Madison Square Garden. Um, there was just something about that night to, to be 
in this arena, and it was our second time. The first time we played there, it was opening for the police. And then the next time, we were the headliners. And for the first time, it had never happened, but the, the lighting guy brought up the house lights, and it was the first time I was on stage and saw, you know, an entire arena where everybody was out of their seats and they were dancing and it was from the very front to the the top of the rafters everyone was up having the best time and dancing and it was all to like our music that we were playing right in that moment and it was one of the most visceral like um just tangible things that i knew i would always remember and i always have Kathy, can't thank you enough for spending some time with us today. All the best. Please keep safe. And you can find this absolutely anywhere. You can go to Amazon. You can go to any local bookstore. And we look forward to seeing that tour come to life when everything gets a little bit more normal. Thanks so much, Kathy. Thanks, Mike. I enjoyed it so much. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Kathy Valentine. All I Ever Wanted, a rock and roll memoir. Kathy played bass for the Go-Go's and has gone on to other musical successes. And the Go-Go's have stayed. Like That staying power is unbelievable. And here's hoping that that tour comes to life in kind of June-ish, 2021. Let's hope. We are monitoring what is happening with Ontario Premier Doug Ford and Dr. Marilee Fullerton, who is the Minister of Long-Term Care. But I'm looking at this and... It's leaving a sour taste in my mouth. See what it's doing in your mouth. Because earlier today, and we're going to talk about this in four minutes, the Ontario Health Coalition came out and they essentially listed what they feel needs to be a what they call a call to conscience. They have a new report on the COVID-19 crisis in long-term care and wave two that we've been experiencing, according to the Ontario Health Coalition, reveals huge gaps in the Ford government's response. And right now, you have Dr. Marilee Fullerton, who is standing up, addressing this, which in my mind just it, it gives a bad look to, you know, right after this report to, to have this particular reaction. But here's what leaves the sour taste in my mouth. Dr. Fullerton has just said that after years of neglect, the plan by the provincial government is going to make big changes. Okay, yeah, that's fine. But your government was in power in 2018. If this was such a big deal, if this was, and we knew there have been investigative reports for years. We've talked about it before on London Live. There have been investigative reports that go back years and years showing that we don't have enough staffing, that staff members of long-term care are not paid enough money, that residents don't tend to find what they are looking for. And this is not in all long-term care homes, but some have been exposed. And the overall system was called into question years ago. So how is it that you are trying to tell us now Two years into your government taking over that now the problem is going to be fixed. Why wasn't this a priority within the first year? It shouldn't take a pandemic to do something about this. Because we have had other parties calling for changes. Calling for four hours a day of care. 
a guarantee that that will happen. And that was happening even long before the conservatives took over. You can go back and you can attack the liberals for it. It doesn't matter who you want to attack. The fact is, this can was kicked down the road, and now it leaves a sour taste in my mouth that we hear the Ontario government saying, all right, we're, we now have our plan, don't worry, dun da 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 to the rescue. No, no, if you were coming to the rescue, you would have been there before. You would have already had the rescue underway. Instead, now, we're in a second wave of this pandemic. I don't know. I don't get it. Let's find out a little bit more about this report. Again, a call to conscience. New report on the COVID-19 crisis in long-term care in wave two from the Ontario Health Coalition reveals huge gaps in the Ford government's response. Joining us right now from the London Health Coalition is Peter Bergmanis. Peter, thanks so much for being here. How are you? I'm well, and season's greetings to you, Mike. Well, season's greetings, and I'm just, I'm watching the provincial government react to this right now, and it does feel very reactionary, so let's leave that for the moment, and let's look at what this report details. When we hear huge gaps, what are we talking about? Well, I think uh, there's no surprise to you uh, or your listeners that uh, we keep hearing uh breaking records every day as to COVID increases in the community, more deaths. Londoners are not immune to that, and um, quite clearly there's been a colossal failure at the top where decisions are not being made that should be helping Ontarians. We have had some time here, Peter, and I think back, you know, we can go back before the pandemic, We have been told for a long time that there have been issues in long-term care, and for whatever reason, those were not addressed. And then the pandemic begins, and we hear that there are major issues in long-term care, and that was backed up by some tragedies in long-term care in this province. And we had promises that something would be done. Have we seen any kind of movement toward making appropriate changes Regrettably, nothing really of substance. Uh, there's been a lot of soundbite from the Premier's office, but uh, you and I wouldn't be talking about uh, these enormous failures that have taken place if there had been actual measured, constructive protocols implemented. Now, I can point directly to the fact that uh, you and I have spoken in the past about the staffing crisis. Well, look, it's completely collapsed now. It was in a in a horrible free fall in the first place before the pandemic, and now it's absolutely in total collapse, and uh, there's nothing being done by this government to change that. And I find that surprising, and you mentioned sound bites. Yeah, we, we have heard a lot of sound bites, and now all of a sudden the provincial government seems to be out in front saying, all right, we have this plan. We had been hearing that we had staff, and this has been happening for a long time, working in multiple homes and when you're in a pandemic is there any better way to spread a virus than to have somebody going to different places on a regular basis have we seen anything change there do we still have staff members who are doing that well what we're actually finding is that the government implemented you know this one employer policy but then it failed to uh, follow up by providing any kind of substantive changes in working conditions for people to 
actually make a full-time decent living wage in those various single employers. And then a massive loophole for agency staff, which the public would know better as temps, to be able to work in multiple employers anyways. Because, of course, what they're trying to hide is that we don't have staff. You can't look after people if you don't have staff. You can't practice infection control if you don't have staff. And that's what they're trying to mask. Peter Bergman is joining us from the London Health Coalition as we look at a report today that's very scathing that deals with the Ford government's response in long-term care homes and the crisis that exists in long-term care in many areas. Can we look and say there are some long-term care homes, Peter, that, hey, they are doing it right and things are happening okay? Is that a thing? Oh, yeah, and I don't mean to come on the air and come off like uh, we don't appreciate the enormous sacrifice that so many have made, and, you know, we are in complete solidarity with those um, healthcare providers and those families who have lost loved ones. But um, the fact of the matter is there has to be leadership here. It shouldn't be coming from the people trying to sort things out themselves. Where is our leadership? Well, that's something that you don't ever want to have to question. You absolutely don't want to have to question. We're talking with Peter Bergmanis from the London Health Coalition about this report into long-term care and, and some of the issues that we are seeing. One of the things that's been talked about is wages. And we've known for a long time, if you want to be a personal support worker, you're doing it because typically you're a very kind and generous and giving person. You're not doing it to get rich. There was talk by the Ford government in the spring that we would see changes made in that way. Have we seen changes there? Utter failure utter failure. There's been nothing substantive whatsoever. Look at what Quebec was able to do in the same time period we're talking about. The Quebec government stepped up in May, June, literally took on the task of recruitment, training for 10,000 PSWs, which they were ready to unroll in autumn. We, at the same time period, absolutely nothing. Piecemeal efforts, a small paltry a pandemic premium, which was only temporary, and now a secondary one, which is even less than the first time around. There's clearly a real problem here when uh, the government sits on a vast pile of cash claiming that it's going to take care of our deficit in the future. But right now we have a human and moral deficit taking place, which is going completely out of control. Peter, you're not the first person on London Live to mention that pile of cash that the government is sitting on, and that's something that is going to come back and bite them hard unless they deal with what's going on. Let's talk about conditions in, again, some. We don't want to paint every long-term care home in the same way because they aren't in the same spot, but some will have four to a room, a ward style, is that something that we are seeing done away with in any way? Or again, does that take a, a whole lot more than just saying, all right, do this? Well, the the point here is, again, that uh, as the government has stated that employees need not work in more than one employer, they also have said, okay, we're going to end the four-bedroom ward Unfortunately, uh, this is only going to be applied through attrition. So those wards only cease to exist as the residents move out of them, so to speak. And, of course, the 
for-profit industry still gets paid on an empty bed as much as they get paid on a occupied bed, so they have no issue with that. And yet, we don't even have a full-time RN required to be on staff 24-7. Do we have access to people who we could be training, Peter? I mean, if you say Quebec is able to do this, why aren't we? Well, Quebec actually stepped up and said, we're going to pay you well. They gave them, you know, a $21 an hour pay for just the training purposes. And then they guaranteed a $26 an hour wage rate. Whereas here in Ontario, we're, we're not that different. We're, we're like the two most populous provinces side by side. And we could easily do that. There's plenty of workers out there looking for work right now. Unemployment is high. But the thing is, what are we asking him to do? Stepping in the most dangerous work possible that's undervalued in a pandemic? Oh, that's very attractive, isn't it? Peter Bergman is joining us from the London Health Coalition as we talk about a report into long-term care that came out this morning from the Ontario Health Coalition. Peter, what would be a sign to you that things were going in the right direction? What do we need to see that tells us this is not going to be a soundbite, but this is going to be action? Well, we have gotten down so far down the road of this crisis now that I'm very fearful that uh, if we don't bring in immediate levels of staffing resources, and this might require, again, a call to the military, we're not going to get out of this anytime soon. But certainly the government would show its good faith by implementing something akin to what the Quebec government did. And then we need to certainly bring on the fact that we need far more resources in personal protective equipment. We need real interventions and transparency. We don't even have, uh, you know, the field hospitals up and running yet. But again, that's a recognition that we don't have any way to staff them. So they want to have something that really resembles a true future in our long-term care system, that government has to step up and start releasing funding for resources and take the responsibility of doing it. Peter, thank you so much for giving us the info. Is there anything that we're missing, do you think, right now from the report this morning? You can find it very easily online. Just simply search Ontario Health Coalition and December 17th report, and you can read the entire thing. Is there anything we're missing? Well, unfortunately, we haven't even dealt with the unchecked community spread. And, you know, this is all part of that failing that uh, of leadership at the top. And I can only say that, uh, you know, in this time of, you know, celebration for so many of us, we have to remember that it's been an unprecedented year. And we need to help our health care workers so they can help us. Well said. Peter, all the best. Thank you so much, and please keep safe. And you as well, my friend, and all the best to your listeners. We'll talk soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is Peter Bergmanis with the London Health Coalition. What do you think? This year, there just seem to be more and more stories that say, wow, that's the way it should be done. That's, that's good stuff. Right there. And we have an example of that right now, courtesy of a couple of guys from Lucan. These two have done some remarkable things, and uh, they're only eight years old each, so I can't wait to see what else these two get involved in. Please welcome 
Porter and Colton and Porter's mom, Jen, all the way from Lucan. How's everybody doing today? Jen, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Not too bad, not too bad. Uh, I can hear how proud you must be, but let's uh, let's start talking about what has happened here. Um, Jen, maybe you can explain how this all got going and how Porter and Colton have been making a massive difference this year. Sure, I can. I've got the boys here with me, too, and they're really excited to talk to you. But it, uh, it all started about three years ago. Uh, when they decided to start to collect Canadian tire money to contribute to kids that were in need. And then it's just grown from there. Guys, it's been a long time since I've had to do math. I know you guys do it a whole lot more than I do. But, Porter, let me see. You're eight years old right now, three years ago. You were five years old when you guys started this? How did you get this idea? Yeah. Um. Well, we were thinking about like Canadian tire money. And then um, I saw some that we had, and then I said I could start raising this with, um, uh, start raising it, and then we could buy gifts at Canadian Tire for kids who need Christmas gifts on Christmas. And then Bolton, um, so we started buying the gifts, and we started buying the gifts because we didn't want kids to have a sad Christmas and not not have fun on Christmas. Wow. And the two of you at, at roughly five years old decide to do this. Um, so you save up Canadian Tire money to start, and now this has become a little bit bigger. Porter, you want to take us through what this year has been like? Um... Well, a lot of people have been fundraising because they've um, donating. A lot of people yeah, have they've been donating. Been don- donating a lot of money um, because they uh, like they think that kids really um, think they want to have a happy Christmas. Um, and how much did you raise? How much did you guys end up oh, raising this year um, for all the donations? We one thousand and twenty-seven dollars. Come on, $1,027. And then what do you do with that money, Colton? Um, we count it, and then we know how much we have, and then we can see how much we can buy. And this year, we bought 67 gifts. 67 gifts. What is it like, Porter, going into... I'm guessing maybe a, a toy store or, you know, I, I'm not sure how you guys are, are doing your shopping, but to pick out gifts for somebody else, because you're not buying this for you guys. You're buying this for other kids who could really use something like this at this time of year. So what is that like? It's um, it's really fun. And where we're going to shop is Canadian Tire. And um, they have really helped us because they've they've paid the tax this year. That's outstanding. And so, Colton, take us through how you how you pick what it is that other kids might want. Do you have to kind of pretend to to think like somebody else, maybe somebody who's younger or older, or girls or boys? How does that work? Well, 
We just sort of guess and like take everything off the shelf to see what might be cool and what's not. So like this year we just looked and looked at the price and we put it in if it was a low price. Yeah, we tried to make the money go as far as we could, didn't we? But then by the end, we were just buying really fun gifts for the kids that we thought. (laughs) We're talking with Jen and Colton and Porter. Colton and Porter have been doing this now for three years. First year, they raised $350. Second year, last year, they raised $700. This year, topped $1,000. And Canadian Tire in St. Mary's, where they've done their shopping, has paid the tax, so they were able to buy 67 gifts, which, Jen, turns into seven carts of toys. How many trips to Canadian Tire did you guys make? Yeah, it was just one, actually, but the car was brimming when we left. There was <laughs> and um, everything shoved around the kids as we were driving back into Lucan. Well, let's give a a quick shout-out to the owner of Canadian Tire and everybody else who has helped out in St. Mary's, Jen, because they've been a a big help to this as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Daniel, the owner at Canadian Tire, was um, fantastic this year and donated the tax. It's actually been, I believe, at least two or three different owners over the past three years, and they've all just been so willing to help with this initiative that the boys have had and um, has made the money go so much further. So it's been great. And ultimately, these wind up at a food bank and toy drive. Where do they go? Yeah, it was really important to us that they stay local. So they're going to the Elsie Craig Food Bank toy drive. We dropped them off at the Lucan Post Office, and they, um, they're picked up there. So we're hoping to make a real difference in the community. Boy, the boys- are you ever. You have done it, Porter and Colton. You guys have done it, too. All right. Before we go, let's ask you guys individually, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because I can't wait to find out what that is. Porter, what do you want to be right now? Um, uh, I kind of want to, uh, like, be a mechanic and, like, yeah, but I think me and Colton are going to do this for a lot of years. (laughs) <laughs> well, being a mechanic is helping people every day, too. Uh, Colton, how about you? Any any dreams for when you grow up? When I grow up, I want to be a firefighter like my dad. Amazing. Well, the two of you have the kindest hearts. It's It's unbelievable to think that at five years old, you would start to put this together, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So thank you for everybody who was involved in this in helping out the community because this is what it is all about. Guys, Jen, happy holidays, and please enjoy your time off school. I know it's coming pretty soon, and thanks for taking some time to talk with us today. Same to you. Thanks so much. What do you want to say, guys? Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. That is Colton and Porter. They are eight years old. And Porter's mom, Jen, and they have been putting together a toy drive, contributing to the Elsa Craig Food Bank and Toy Drive, and this year raised themselves over $1,000, bought 67 gifts, seven carts of toys in total. So phenomenal. Job well done. Never too young, right? You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.